all the Americans have better lawyers. They said, no, the treaty doesn't say we, we, we need that's, to do that. That's, that's the problem when people start kind of throwing those accusations of non- non-compliance. They, it adds to the perception that, oh, the Russians are not trustworthy. Your adversaries are the ones you need to talk to. Because if you don't have the language of diplomacy, you're left with the language of weapons. Listening to the Naked Pravda. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, Medusa's English language managing editor. And on today's show, we're going to talk about arms control. As you might have heard, Vladimir Putin and Joe Biden had their first presidential phone call last month, and the conversation paved the way for a renewal of the New START Treaty, the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty, reached in April 2010 between Presidents Obama and Medvedev. Remember those guys? The treaty halved the number of strategic nuclear missile launchers on both sides and established a new regime for inspections and verifications. New START doesn't limit non-deployed or operationally inactive nuclear warheads that both countries have stockpiled in the high thousands. So if you're worried, there won't be a bomb left for you to ride down to Earth like Slim Pickens and Dr. Strangelove. Don't fret. There are still plenty of warheads ready to go. Anyway, the arms control deal was set to expire on February 5th, 2021, but Moscow and Washington hammered out an extension in short order once Joe Biden took office. But why did it come down to the wire like that? Donald Trump, of course, was reluctant to renew the deal without various conditions that Moscow wouldn't or couldn't meet. But Washington's misgivings about arms control with Russia, or anybody for that matter, run deeper than America's now ex-president. You know, once upon a time, there was a consensus between Republicans and Democrats that arms control was a good thing. I would actually chalk the disintegration of that to the George W. Bush administration, but boy, did it find its legs in the Trump administration. That's Olga Olaker, the director of the International Crisis Group's Europe and Central Asia program. I asked her about the modern-day roots of America's aversion to arms control treaties. It's a debate, and it has been a debate for a long time. The George W. Bush administration, which had some of the same people as the Trump administration, had a similar disaffinity to that sort of organized, verifiable arms control that the Trump administration disliked. One of the reasons you'll hear for why arms control is going to be difficult going forward is the difficulty of Senate ratification. And that speaks to the fact that this has become a very partisan issue. Is that because of the nature of arms control, the idea of, oh, accepting any limitations on American military power or? I I, I had a Russian colleague tell me once that, you know, when he was in school, that it was just a tenet of the way you were taught international relations in Russia, that Republicans in the United States in power were better for Russia than Democrats. And I said, well, well, at least since the Cold War, I don't think that works. Is it that American policymakers don't like arms control at all? Or is it? does it have to do with views about Russia? So it's different things for different people. For some people, it is very simply the desire to be unfettered, trumps, so to speak, any desire to fetter somebody else, right? Because that, that's the whole point with arms control, right? Is you agree to certain limitations to make your adversary feel better so that they will accept some limitations that are going to make you feel better. 
Uh, you can throw other things into that mix, right? You can argue that countries sign on to these things to put constraints on their own military-industrial complex, whatever else. But kind of at, at its core, that's what it is. So some people, yes, they just don't want those limitations. I think there is also a strong narrative that the Russians cheat, that they can't be trusted. So the U.S. ends up limited, but Russia does not. So why do that, right? Why, you know, the U.S. will be good and it'll be law abiding. It'll follow all the rules and the Russians won't. You could take issue with that, right? There have been lots of fights over who's abiding by what and... They've been resolved in different ways in different cases. One of a few deals with Russia that did not survive the Trump administration was the Open Skies Treaty, an agreement reached in 1992 that entered force in 2002, allowing nations to conduct short-notice, unarmed reconnaissance flights over the other's entire territories to collect data on military forces and activities. When the United States withdrew from the deal last year, here's what the Pentagon said about the decision. And to read this decision, I'm using a text-to-speech doodad offered by an app called Descript. And if any of you watched the YouTube series Honest Trailers, I think you'll recognize the voice. It has become abundantly clear that it is no longer in the United States' best interest to remain a party to this treaty when Russia does not uphold its commitments. Russia has increasingly used the treaty to support propaganda narratives in an attempt to justify Russian aggression against its neighbors and may use it for military targeting against the United States and our allies. Since 2017, the United States has declared Russia in violation of the treaty for limiting flight distances over the Kaliningrad Oblast to 500 kilometers and for denying flights within 10 kilometers of portions of the Georgian-Russian border. Most recently, in September 2019, Russia violated the treaty again by denying a flight over a major military exercise, preventing the exact transparency the treaty is meant to provide. We will not allow Russia's repeated violations to undermine America's security and our interests. In this era of great power competition, we will strive to enter into agreements that benefit all sides and that include parties who comply responsibly with their obligations. My understanding is that the issues that were there, and there were, there were some issues, they were mostly of a, what they call a kind of technical nature. That's Pavel Podvig, an independent analyst based in Geneva, where he runs his research project, Russian Nuclear Forces. In addition to being a senior research fellow at the UN Institute for Disarmament Research and a researcher with the Program on Science and Global Security at Princeton University, Pavel also has one of the coolest surnames you will ever find. Podvig means feat, or heroic deed in Russian. Just too cool. Anyway, he says the dispute Washington used to back out of the Open Skies Treaty was something that could have been addressed through existing diplomatic channels. And he points out that Russia had its own issues with how the United States used the Open Skies Treaty. These are, these are the kind of things that you, again, you go to the commission established by the treaty and there is a mechanism there for resol resolving the disputes and, and all that. And, and Russia had its own questions about certain U.S. actions. What happened there was that there was a quota. You can only fly a certain number of miles over someone else's territory. And what the United States did a few times is they just would use that quota just crossing over the, the Kaliningrad, just kind of covering it entirely. And the, the Russians complained and said that this is disrupting air traffic and all that. Well, clearly they didn't quite like it, but 
formally uh, it was about air traffic uh, disruption and there was a disruption and in the end this is again this is something that can be discussed and should be discussed and i'm sure that they, these kind of things they they could be resolved dr Podvik also says there are consequences to american allegations about russian cheating in circumstances where the situation looks very different depending on your perspective this kind of rhetoric is far-reaching, he says. That's the problem when people start kind of throwing those accusations of non-compliance. It adds to the perception that, oh, the Russians are not trustworthy. And as you know, Russia doesn't have a stellar reputation overall, so it all feeds into that kind of narrative. But again, in, in my view, and as I understand the people who actually looked into details of this of these accusations, it's it's definitely not clear cut, and there is a room for discussion there. There was a room for discussion there, and it it should have been the the opportunity should have been taken. So maybe the Russians aren't the massive cheaters they're made out to be, depending on which treaty we're talking about. Clearly, there's room for disagreement here. But where does that leave policymakers in the United States, where public discourse and the military's conclusions, as evident in the DoD statement on Open Skies? have settled on the consensus that the Kremlin is an unreliable negotiating partner. Dr. Olaker told me that members of Congress need to see the bigger picture. If you're in Congress and you've gotten all the briefings and you believe that, then yeah, you've got this logic of saying, okay, why should we sign treaties with them if they're going to cheat? If they're not cheating yet, they'll cheat eventually. And the answer to that, I would say, is, well, you put in verification, it'll make you more comfortable. And this is the funny thing about international law is people abide by deals as long as the deals are in their interests, which means you've got to write them in ways that things stay in their interests. I can't get into John Bolton's head, but I think it's, I think it's a combination of things in the end. It's distrust of Moscow. It's lack of a desire to have limits on U.S. capabilities. It's possibly a distrust of international law and international agreements in general, which also goes to not wanting to have the U.S. limited, right? These are the same people who wanted to get out of various U.N. systems, international courts, right? As, as few limitations on the U.S. as possible. Full sovereignty, right? Uh, I think the Biden administration is chock full of people who believe in arms control. So their job is going to be convincing Congress, I don't think that's an impossible job. It's an educational process. And what's the key message of that educational process? That it does constrain Russia. That a good treaty is a treaty that everybody stays in because it's to their advantage. And a good treaty is one that has real constraints that make it difficult to cheat or very disadvantageous to cheat. And that a treaty like that can be negotiated. The Russians haven't cheated on New START. There is no evidence that they ever had. If anything, they complain a little bit about the U.S. interpretation of New START and how the U.S. has chosen to convert capabilities from, from nuclear to conventional and that it's reversible. And Russians, Russians feel like that's, it's, not, it's not technically cheating, but wow, do they wish they could have written that into the treaty, like they thought of that when they were negotiating. When it comes to the New START treaty, Russia's objections get a bit technical. So I asked Pavel Podvig to break down, for me and for you, what the Americans are doing that upsets Moscow. The treaty limits the number of launchers by 700, and the number of deployed and non-deployed launchers by 800. 
So it's a large number, and there are more launchers out there than the treaty allows. So the treaty, uh, what the treaty uh, allows you to do is to uh, exclude a, a launcher from the count. So just say, okay, this is the launch tube. These are these are launch tubes on submarines. The, the, the way it works is that if there is a missile in the tube, then it is deployed launcher. It's counted against 700 limit. If you remove the missile, just remove the missile, but the tube is intact, then it is undeployed, non-deployed launcher. So it is counted, but against the 800 limit. So that's the, the trick. Uh, but then there is a procedure of converting the launcher that is supposed to make it unusable for a missile. So, and that way, if you go through a certain procedure, then you could exclude that launcher from the count. It can't fire any missile at all, or it specifically can't fire a strategic nuclear missile? Each launcher is associated with a certain missile. So if it's a Trident II missile, then you convert that launcher in a way that it can no longer fire the Trident to missile. I see, but they're not like filling it up with cement. <laughs> well, that's 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 the that's the thing. So the spirit of the treaty is that you sort of you do it more or less like that. You fill it with concrete, and that's if you do that, then you cannot fire anything from this. Uh, what the United States did instead, they just removed certain elements, like it's called the pressure, uh, I, I know the name is in Russian, but basically a gas generator that pops out the uh, missile out of the silo. And if you remove it, it's, yes, it, it, is, it cannot launch the missile, but you can install it back. And that way, it's a... It's a kind of a fine point. Technically, again, if you if you read the letter of the treaty, it says that Russia, if Russia is not happy with this procedure, and Russia was not happy, Russia can complain. But then what happens is that if Russia complains, then the United States has to kind of show that procedure more closely, like in slow motion. <laughs> And that's it. And there is the, there is basically no legal recourse after that. I mean, there is some, and the, there is a there is an argument that the Russians made that you 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 still you sort of you need to get an approval of some sort. And well, the Americans have better lawyers. They said no, the treaty doesn't say we we, we need to do that. But it, it is again. It's, it's the kind of an issue that would have to be discussed in this bilateral commission. And at some point, the Russians basically said that, well, look, we are ready to have an agreement on that. The whole verification process sounds kind of surreal to me because you send, presumably, you know, you send your scientists to the other side and they're inspecting these machines that are supposed to fly over to your country and blow up, you know, a million people or whatever. I mean, isn't is that what the experience is essentially, right? Very much so. Yes, <laughs> yes, they go. Yeah, they go. They go to yeah, they go to a silo, they go to the or or on a submarine, they open the a cover, they open the shroud if there is a shroud or do uh, other stuff and then they just count the warheads. This is this is uh, this is how it works. So 
the New START Treaty is saved for another five years, but America is out of the Open Skies Treaty, the INF Treaty on Intermediate Missiles is dead, the ABM Treaty on Missile Defense is long dead. Did this recent treaty extension delay an inevitable future where arms control agreements between Russia and the U.S. are impossible? Dr. Olaker says not necessarily. There are a lot of places to still go, whether it's additional limits on the strategic systems that are limited by New START, or if it's limits on other systems, limits on missile defenses, which went away with the end of the ABM treaty, which the Russians have historically wanted back limits on intermediate range systems, which the INF treaty had, which we no longer have, which nobody wants actually quite the way they were in the INF, but everybody wants something for limits on hypersonic systems, limits on, you know, what we might call the exotic weapons, right? Nuclear reactors that travel around the world and things like that. But there's lots of room to grow or to shrink. But yeah, if New START isn't extended again, there's five, there's five years to negotiate and figure something else out. And yes, Congress would have to ratify. So that also means five years to try to convince or elect legislative officials in the United States who think that there is value to arms control. Dr. Podvig also has high hopes for the future of U.S.-Russian arms control, though what he actually expects is a bit more pessimistic. I have my doubts that it will end anywhere productive in the next few years, but it's again, it's a, it's a healthy process in many ways. Uh, my hope is that they will get to some kind of a real business, if you will. And there are, there are certain areas where things are possible. For example, the Russian proposal of this moratorium on intermediate range uh, missiles in Europe, which they put on the table after the uh, collapse of the INF treaty, that proposal is still there. It is in augmented form with this missile added in. It actually makes sense. And if that takes off, that would be actually a very good contribution to to European security and security in general. And this is where you could talk about verification, because for that moratorium to work, you do need a new verification methods, tools, technologies. You need close contacts, you need inspections, you need data exchange. So all that will, will, will come in. And that's, I think that would be a very good process. If you look at the overall kind of a status of U.S.-Russian relations at this point, and you, you could read the uh, readout of the telephone call between two presidents, you can see there are a lot of issues there, and some of them are pretty contentious. And that, in fact, almost makes me optimistic about arms control because sort of arms control is what they know how to do. It's fairly straightforward. And there, there is actually a room there for a meaningful progress. And in a way, you, you could see how both uh, countries could use that channel as a kind of a proof of their uh, maturity, if you will. Sort of, yes, they, they are responsible states. They care about security. They care about not letting the arms race, things like that, even though they have all these disagreements. So I think that's, uh, that's. Uh, I hope this is what, what will happen. Uh, because again, uh, as, as long as neither side 
kind of gets this idea that, oh, this arms control gives us leverage over them and we could use arms control as a kind of a carrot to get concessions in other areas, whether it's cyber or whether it's human rights or what have you. As long as this doesn't happen, I think there there is room for progress in arms control. What do you say to like a, a American congressman who says, well, the fact that the Russians want to stay in these things so bad, these treaties, and that we're so anxious to get out, that's evidence that these treaties are in their interests and not in ours, and that the whole concept of arms control, they're the ones that want it so bad. They must, it must be in their interests. So why are we helping them? They don't want it that badly. <laughs> so that would be my first response. You think the Russians want it that badly, um, think again. The Russians like it. They think it's advantageous. They think it put some limits on the U.S. To be frank, it puts some limits on their own mis- their own missileers and all the creative people who come up with new technologies. And you actually do want some constraints on what they can do and how much of your tax revenue they can spend. But they can work around it. They can function in a world without it. We sign these things because they're mutually beneficial. They They win some of it. We win some of it. The notion that anything that is in any way advantageous to your adversary is automatically disadvantageous to you is, you know, it's cutting off your nose to spite your face. And the only thing you get out of that is a whole lot of tax dollars spent on things that are redundant with capabilities that the United States already has that and that make Americans less safe rather than more safe. And it also makes, you know, th- this isn't this isn't a game we particularly want to play. We are actually, the United States is under more constraints in some ways than Russia because you do have public opinion, you do have, also, you know, nuclear weapons aren't terribly popular except in a few districts here and there. Is this really what you want to justify spending on longer term? Isn't it better to have systems in place that mean that you, it's not required? Also, how else are you going to get good eyes on on what the Russians are doing and what they're building? Yes, you trade for that, their eyes on what you're doing and what you're building, but that also helps with deterrence. They understand then just what the United States can do because they've seen it. And that's valuable also. Do you think there's the United States will ever, will really ever... I mean, so much of the rhetoric coming from the West and specifically American policymakers seems to be that Russia is never going to be a reliable negotiating partner again until Putin is out. I think it was earlier this week, Vladimir Frolov had a had a piece first in Republic, and then I think it was translated for the Moscow Times, where he says, I think he's reappropriating the Condoleezza Rice slogan of forgive, uh, ignore, and punish. And when, that, when the Condoleezza Rice said it was about the Iraq war, and it was like France, Russia, and Germany... And now Frolov's using it for Russia's policy in response to Navalny. And it's like, it's You're right. The U.S. and the EU. Forgive right? the U.S., it's, ignore France, punish and Germany pun- and the EU. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the points he makes in that is that America should be forgiven because essentially the Biden administration is, is now reengaging it diplomatically at these high levels. And that that is actually good for the Putin regime. I don't know if he uses the word regime. That's kind of a bit, no, you know. No, you usually only use regime about somebody else. Probably doesn't say regime, right. So the Putin administration, it's it's a it's a validating thing for, it legitimizes the status. 
of the Putin administration. Should American policymakers or Western policymakers in general, do you think they should be concerned that by engaging Russia diplomatically, they are perpetuating the the status quo domestically? You don't need to talk to your friends. Your friends are the people you've been engaged in these communications with forever, and you understand them, and you generally get along. Sometimes there's some misunderstandings. You sit down, you talk it through. Your adversaries are the ones you need to talk to. Because if you don't have the language of diplomacy, you're left with the language of weapons. Are we keeping the Putin government in power by talking to it? No, the Putin government's keeping itself in power. And you deal with the government in place, not the government you wish you had. The United States has some experience with regime change. I don't know that it's ever happened because we ignored the government that was there for long enough and it eventually went away. It has happened by going in and invading and, you know, getting rid of the existing government that way. But that also hasn't historically gone as well as one might wish. Look, it's, you know, if somebody has taken power in a coup, there's, you know, there are questions of, you know, when do you recognize, what do you do about it? All of, you know, all of this comes up. Vladimir Putin has been in charge of Russia for a pretty long time. He runs Russia. It's the international system. The United States doesn't actually decide who's legitimate or not in another country. They can have opinions but the United States gets to decide who is and is not legitimate in the United States. We struggle with that. <laughs> yeah, well, evidently, right? Evidently, that's not so simple either. Diplomats' job is to talk to adversaries and allies. And do the adversaries sometimes use that to their advantage? Sure. But there's nobody else to talk to. You still have to deal with Russia. You know, you can't cut a deal on anything by going to the average Russian in the street, right? Maria Ivanovna is not uh, capable of negotiating on behalf of her nation until and unless she's been elected. Uh, Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin is in a position to negotiate on behalf of his nation, as are the people he has put in positions of power. You can like them, you can dislike them. He can like or dislike the people in charge of the United States, but you know, this is the international system we've got. You've been listening to The Naked Pravda, an English-language podcast from Medusa. On today's show, we heard from experts Olga Olikar and Pavel Podvig. Dr. Olikar is the director of the International Crisis Group's Europe and Eurasia program, and Dr. Podvig is an independent analyst based in Geneva. The Naked Pravda is a podcast from Medusa. It's our only English-language show, and I hope you'll recommend us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. It will help put this program in front of more people. Thanks for listening, and come back soon. <laughs>